alliances with other countries play a critical role in our nation's foreign policy. And although throughout history there have been, as now, strong opponents as well as supporters, we should not forget that if our alliance with France uh, had not existed, our independence might have had a very different outcome. So Winston Churchill said, famously, there's only one thing worse than fighting with allies, and that's fighting without them. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And this morning, we have the opportunity to explore with my guest, Dr. Mira Rapp-Hooper, why, in her view, alliances are a nation's uh, a key, a key, key a, a appropriate measure, and, and how they help to uh, protect and conserve and efficiently uh, use our resources. We're also going to talk about how alliances perhaps need to be adapted to the needs and threats of the 21st century. Mira is the author of a recently published book, Shields of the Republic, The Triumph and Perils of America's Alliance. And so before we begin our conversation, I'd like to extend a very special welcome to our promotional partners, Columbia Alumni Association of DFW, the Yale Club of Dallas, as well as the Yale Club of Fort Worth. And as often is the case, I wanna give a special shout out to the World Affairs Council of Orange County. Now to keep up with our programs, please go to our website at dfwworld.org or if you've missed a program and please refer your friends to go to our YouTube channel and there again, it's DFW World. To purchase a copy of Mira's book, just go to interrobangbooks.com and remember, you can get a 10% discount if you just type in the code DFWWORLD, but do remember that that's only for online purchases, but I hope you will support Dallas's independent bookstore. Uh, as many of you know, I like to weave your questions into the conversation. We'll get into as many of them as we can. So just go ahead and enter that into the Q&A screen and we'll get to your questions throughout the conversation. Uh, so Mira uh, received a lot of degrees at Stanford, her bachelor's as well as I suspect the, the master's. She received her PhD from Columbia University uh, she is now holding senior fellow positions at both the Council on Foreign Relations as well as Yale Law School. So this is your first book. Welcome. Welcome to Dallas-Fort Worth. Welcome to our council, Mira. Delighted to see you. Jim, thanks so much for the warm introduction. I wish I could be with you in person, but I'm delighted to have the opportunity to engage with this fantastic audience and to be part of the terrific lineup that you just laid out. I wish I could join you for every single one of these talks. Well, well one of these days you, you'll be in Dallas, I hope. And I so enjoyed listening to the podcast that you did with Bill Clifford a few weeks ago. Oh, so we'll, it was such a treat to do that. We'll get into some of those conversations, but one of the good things is we have a bit more time, so we'll be able to, I think, draw in a lot more questions. So uh, one of your bosses, Richard Haas, wrote this book, uh, The World, A Brief Introduction, uh, underscoring the importance of alliances. He devoted an entire chapter to it, and his first definition is quite brief. An alliance is a collection of countries that have come together to promote what they see as their common security interest. While that is accurate, I suspect you'll give us a much broader, deeper definition. So let's start with that. Wonderful, yeah. So um, Richard's definition is no doubt accurate, but in my book, I actually look at a very specific and rather targeted uh, definition of alliances in American foreign policy. Um, I'm looking at the system of treaty out 
is that the United States built for itself in the early days of the Cold War. That began, of course, with the Atlantic Alliance, which would become NATO and now comprises our 30 NATO allies um, in Europe. But it also includes a set of treaty allies in East Asia, namely Japan, South Korea, Australia, and the Philippines. Um, and for a long while, New Zealand was formally a part of it and is still, uh, in many ways, a part of that system. Um, and indeed, we are, we are seeing uh, the sort of formative moment. We're all present at the creation of NATO with this picture here. Uh, the reason that I chose to focus on America's treaty allies specifically is because I think it's important to understand that where Washington has extended treaty guarantees to specific allies, it has made a commitment that is different than any other commitment that it has on this. That is, in these treaties that it has extended to NATO and to allies in East Asia, Washington has promised to treat the security of an ally as though it were its own security. This is perhaps the most sacred commitment that a country could make in international affairs. Uh, IR scholars will tell us all sorts of reasons why these types of commitments are difficult for countries like the United States to extend. They sort of press the bounds of credibility of what we can commit to. IR scholars will also warn us that by doing so, we're opening ourselves up to entrapment and entanglement in the vicissitudes of these allies. Um, but policymakers will often use more expansive definitions. That is, they will refer to any country that the United States partners with on a security goal as though they are an ally. But for my purposes, I really wanted to get to the heart of a couple of questions. What has been the U.S. record on alliances? That is, did we accomplish our goals that we set out for them? How and at what cost? And what should be our goals going forward? So to my mind, it was important to bring to bear a fairly rigorous definition of alliances. I picked the one that early Cold War planners had in mind when they set out to build this system. And that's what I evaluate throughout the book. Well, before we get to the situation right now, uh, I went to the University of Virginia, Mr. Jefferson's university. And of course he was very involved in the, along with Washington about America's role in the world particularly warning about entanglements. And I found it very interesting in your book about how you t addressed uh, how when France and, and, and England entered war, how that created a real difficult challenge for how the United States was going to react. So I wonder if you might just spend a minute or two talking about that situation, because I don't think that's really perhaps been explored in the way that you, you addressed it. Absolutely. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, Jim, at the outset, the United States uh, sort of owes its birth to an alliance. Um, and that is, of course, the Franco-American Pact, without which the United States probably would not have won the Revolutionary War. Um, now, that pact endured um, long after uh, the Republic did become independent. Um, and it, it endured for long enough that it began to cause problems for the United States. Um, that is, the United States was increasingly uh, sort of bristly at the idea of being treated as a junior partner by France. Um, there was, of course, at the time, um, something of a split uh, amongst American leaders, some who tended to prefer a tilt towards Britain and others who tended to prefer uh, the enduring alliance with France. Um, and of course, when France and Britain went to war amongst themselves, um, and subsequently when France, uh, or rather before when France had its own revolution, this provoked the question of what side America would take. That is, now that it had a treaty guarantee in place that had already served the United States so well, would it support France's revolution? 
Uh, would it perhaps stand aside in the conflict between France and Britain? Would it realign itself with Britain? And this resulted in the warning that Washington made in his own farewell address and that Jefferson himself carried forward, that the United States should not submit itself to standing alliances. Uh, for fear that in its early days, the Republic would be pulled into the vicissitudes of European politics and policy. That is, that it would become entrapped in conflict, it would get mired in crises, and that it would become unable to focus on consolidating its own ability for self-government. So Washington, on his departure, left us with this warning against uh, entangling alliances, and Jefferson only reaffirmed it. But of course, what they were really warning against was a specific alliance with France, which had become a little too messy for the United States like it. Nevertheless, because their successors took so seriously these exhortations of our founding fathers, no U.S. president would consent to form a formal alliance again years. And indeed, they only did so when World War II made it virtually impossible not to. So this was in many ways the legacy of both Washington and Jefferson that arguably may have endured longer than it should have. So for a long period of time, we did not have any formal allies. That's absolutely right. Um, not only did we not form any formal alliances in the 19th century, but even in the early 20th century, when World War I broke out and the United States eventually entered it, Woodrow Wilson was so loath to form an alliance with any country that he actually created a novel category to allow the United States to enter World War I without provoking the congressional ire that almost certainly would have come from the decision to form an alliance with European countries. That is, he created a term called associated power status, which allowed the United States to enter the war without making a formal treaty alliance or subverting control of its Groups to any European partner. And of um, and course, that's really not surprising given the fact that we did not ratify our entry into the League of Nations. Well, so of course, it was the decision not to ratify the entry into the League of Nations that came at the end of the war, but this same antipathy towards alliances helped to contribute to that decision too. So as late as the end of World War I, and indeed in the peace process that concluded it, the United States still remained deeply antagonistic to the idea of formal alliances with any country. So as you said in the book, from 1949 to 1955, U.S. had security guarantees with 23 countries uh, in Asia and Europe. How many do we have now? So I, you know, we, we can sort of negotiate the definitions here. And as, as mentioned, I take um, as a given that I'm looking at formal treaty commitments to defend an ally. But by that count, it's 34 countries. That is 30 allies inside of NATO, which is obviously the vast majority of them, and four allies in East Asia, which includes South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, and Australia. And when you say defend, you really mean a military defense. Yep. This is a treaty commitment to treat an attack on one of these countries as an attack on the United States. In NATO's case, the language is treating an attack on one as an attack on all. Um, In the case of our allies in Asia, the treaty language is a little bit different. But the commitment is substantively the same. That is, an unprovoked attack on one of these countries will be taken as a grave threat to the United States and will prompt very likely some form of military defense. And when we're talking about NATO, we're always talking about Article 5. Is that correct? 
That's correct. And when we talk about our allies in East Asia, the article um, by, by virtue of its number varies a little bit. Some of those are known as Article 5 commitments. In a couple of cases, they're Article 4 commitments. Um, but that's sort of just the exigency of the sequencing of the treaty. Uh, the basic idea is that in each one of these treaties, there is a mutual defense clause that makes clear that the United States takes the security of this ally as its own security. We're getting a lot of questions and I appreciate them. Uh, Hesu, I promise you I'm going to ask about Taiwan in a, in a little bit. Uh, Jean-Pierre has a question. Do we have any uh, alliances in Central or South America? That's a great question. Um, so not by my count, <laughs> uh, but certainly by some definitions. There was a post-war pact, which still endures today, that is known as the Rio Treaty, and it became the basis for the organization of American states. Um, now, the Rio Treaty, um, to my mind, and I think in a lot of scholars' minds, is a, a different beast than NATO or our treaty commitments in East Asia, largely because it was actually formed before NATO ever was. That is before US planners had in their mind the idea of creating these types of mutual defense commitments to allies in Europe and Asia. What the Rio Treaty really does is codify the Monroe Doctrine. That is establish the fact that if foreign powers try to interfere in the Western Hemisphere, specifically if they try to do so militarily, the United States will take an interest in that and try to prevent them from doing so. But that's a different type of commitment than saying an attack on one of these allies will engender some type of reaction from Washington. Um, and indeed, there are a number of crises and conflicts we can look at, such as the Falklands War um, with Argentina and Great Britain, that show us that the United States does not actually have the same type of defense commitment to South America and Central America. You know, as I mentioned um, when we began, I just finished reading uh, Perry's book, The Button, where, of course, there's a lot of discussion about the word deterrence. You spend a full chapter and a bit more about deterrence. Go ahead and expand on that, because I was not really familiar with this sense of, or definition, de deterrence by, the difference between deterrence by denial and deterrence by punishment. Absolutely, Jim. It's a really important question, um, and I'll back up and say it's important to understand deterrence if we're going to understand how alliances function and how we measure their success. One of the tricky things about alliances is that their success is incredibly difficult to measure because when they're working, we don't see them. Alliance success is measured by the crises that never escalate and the wars that don't break out. That is, they're doing their job when they are successfully deterring. So if we are to understand America's alliance record, to understand where it has done what we set out it to do, we have to try to break open this tricky concept of deterrence and evaluate where it may have actually worked. So what is deterrence? Deterrence is the act of dissuading a rival from undertaking an attack that they might have otherwise wanted to. Um, so in the Cold War, of course, we can think centrally of the Soviet Union uh, wanting to advance, advance its aims in Europe or in Asia, um, perhaps attacking a frontline Cold War state in a way to expand its influence. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast 
and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. So the key places we might have expected to see the Soviet Union or its proxies attack American allies during the Cold War would have been in places like a divided Germany, where of course there was a split between East and West, including in Berlin, um, on the Korean Peninsula, where there was a split between North and South Korea, and in the Taiwan Straits, where of course there is a frozen standoff to this day between the People's Republic in China, of China and what was then known as the Republic of China on Taiwan. Um, so these are the places where we might have expected to see some form of conflict. If, however, one successfully sends signals to an adversary that says, do not attack or I will take the following action, that adversary may be dissuaded from attacking at all. And there are two different categories of deterrence that we can think about. The first is deterrence by denial. That's the sort of message that you send, which tells an adversary that if you attack, your goals won't succeed, perhaps because my military capabilities are better than yours, or because I will rush to the aid of this ally with other countries by my side and we together will thwart you. You won't be able to achieve your goals. But there's a second category, and that's known as deterrence by punishment. That's when you send a message to a rival that says, if you attack, you will meet with such a devastating reprisal that the political objective you were trying to achieve couldn't possibly be worth it. And the key way the United States sent that signal during the Cold War was to implicitly threaten the use of nuclear weapons against the Soviet Union on behalf of an ally. And that is part of, frankly, what the power of this American alliance system was during the Cold War. There was always an implicit threat by the United States to prospectively, not definitely, use nuclear weapons on behalf of an ally if one was attacked in a conflict with the Soviet Union. And by doing so, create real pause in the mind of any adversary as to whether or not any political goal could possibly be worth that. So really both deterrence by denial and deterrence by punishment loomed over the course of all US alliances during the Cold War. But that punishment piece by virtue of the implication of nuclear weapons, I do think was particularly powerful. Have our involvement and membership in various alliances ever brought us into a conflict where we did not want to be in a conflict? It's a great question, Jim. And it's a point that I really um, try to foot stomp in my book. Much as scholars um, and even politicians on both sides of the aisle, frankly, warn us that our allies are likely to entangle us in unwanted conflict, there is no evidence for this in the US alliance system. It has not happened. Now, let me be clear how that is the case. First, no US ally has ever been the victim of an attack causing the United States to come to its aid. So remarkably, and despite the fact that all of these 34 allies we're talking about here sat on the front lines of the Cold War, the Soviet Union, China, North Korea, never ultimately attacked any of them in an unprovoked attack that would have involved the invocation of these treaty commitments. Now, the United States did occasionally enter lower level crises on the side of allies. You could think of crises that occurred over the status of Berlin or in the Taiwan Straits or on the Korean Peninsula. 
But generally, the United States entered those crises because it saw its own national interest to be at stake, as opposed to feeling like it was obligated to because of the ally. And by doing so, it helped to keep that crisis from escalating. So we could make a case that the United States maybe did become entangled in some crises, but by and large, it helped to tamp them down. The final point that I would make here is that far from becoming embroiled in unwanted conflicts, the only time an American treaty guarantee has ever been invoked was when the United States itself was attacked on September 11th, and NATO allies invoked this Article 5 commitment to clamor to Washington's aid. So far from being pulled breakneck into conflicts the way the Founding Fathers worried we would be, the United States has actually felt remarkably little by way of these downside consequences and indeed has reaped so much of the upside of having allies by its side. So when we look at Afghanistan, for instance, we talk about a coalition and clearly a number of countries have been involved in Afghanistan and they probably think they were somewhat entangled. Was, was that an act of uh, their involvement? Was that part of an alliance or something else? So many allies, um, including NATO members and U.S. treaty allies in East Asia, did make the decision to join the United States um, in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And indeed, this is another point I would make about the extent to which the United States has reaped the upside benefits of alliances. It has initiated or joined many wars of choice, including in Vietnam and in Iraq and Afghanistan. But in none of these cases did American treaty allies have the obligation to join it in those conflicts. That is, nothing in these treaty guarantees suggested that if the United States engaged in a conflict outside of the area of this treaty, that ally had to come to the U.S. aid. But nonetheless, the United States had the support of nine allies in Vietnam, 34 in Afghanistan and 24 in Iraq, which implicitly meant that the price that we paid in blood and treasure on all of these battlefields, which was of course still grievous, was nonetheless lower than it possibly could have been without allies. Now in many cases, um, in all of these wars, allies did join conflicts over the opposition of their domestic populations. And as they continued their commitments to these conflicts, those opposition tended to grow over time. But nonetheless, this was not a treaty obligation that brought them there. Rather, it was in many ways the down payment that the United States had made by helping to provide for other countries' security that then meant Washington reaped the benefits when it did have its own wars of choice. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's uh, take this question from John McClure. As someone who has spent his entire lifetime involved with NATO, uniformed defense companies, uh, U.S. government organizations, uh, where do you see this alliance going? Uh, would we, will we live up to Article 5 in countries such as the Baltics and Central Europe? Tough question, but one that really has to be on the table. It's a great question, and I'm glad to receive it from someone who has such a venerable record of service um, on exactly the issues that we're discussing here today, because it's a question that is going to be with us for a very long time, and I'll note, no matter who is in office, who is president of the United States, because many of the issues facing NATO are really structural issues that are the result of 21st century geopolitics and shifting power dynamics um, that will outlive and outlast any U.S. president. Um, the first thing that I'll note is that NATO um, is now beset by what I would think of as sort of a twofold challenge from Russia. And in many ways, there are parallels in Asia, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. 
on the high level, uh, NATO has a credibility problem when it comes to defending militarily its eastern flank. Because NATO, after the Cold War, enlarged all the way to Russia's doorstep, including the Baltic states, um, which of course were just mentioned, it has now landed on Russia's front lawn, and it is much harder to defend militarily NATO's eastern flank um, than it would have been if NATO didn't enlarge. Now, this is not to say that NATO should, should not have enlarged, but rather to say that there were some unintended consequences. And in particular, once Russia became revanchist, it was put into stark relief that it would be ever more difficult to defend countries like Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which lie right on Russia's doorstep and were formerly a part of the Soviet Union. Um, but in addition to the military defense of um, the Baltics, Russia poses a second set of challenges to the alliance, which can't be solved through traditional military means. That is, Russia is, of course, a country on the decline. And although it continues to have considerable conventional and nuclear military prowess, it is actually resorting more and more to the use of asymmetric tactics, the use of paramilitary forces in countries like uh, Ukraine or Georgia, um, but even more importantly, from the United States perspective, the use of disinformation, misinformation, and cyber malice to erode NATO unity, to attack NATO members, and to promote disunity amongst the European Union without ever triggering an alliance treaty at all. Now, the reason Russia can get away with this is because American alliance commitments actually operate just at the military level. Our Article 5 treaties are committing to the military defense of NATO partners, but they don't say or imply all that much about what we'll do to support one another if we become the victims of a major type of attack that isn't military at all. So I see NATO's charges being at least twofold. Number one, make more credible the traditional military defense of NATO's eastern flank, primarily by promoting the readiness of European partners who need to be able to get to the Baltics on time. And number two, improve NATO's ability to respond to non-military attacks, primarily threats in cyberspace and disinformation. Campaigns. So is that a political decision? Where would that come up from? Because with NATO, you're really looking at the military side as well as the political. So it is a, a political decision to certainly to build out more of this apparatus um, on both cyber and disinformation and to create the channels that would promote unified responses from existing NATO members. Um, it's sort of a no brainer that all of us or many of us as NATO members have already become the victim of these types of attacks. It's not only the United States who suffered foreign intervention in its last election, but of course, France, Germany, the UK as well. So there's no question that there's a unified political interest here, but a decision needs to be taken politically that this is going to be part of NATO's collective defense mission going forward. Finally, I'll just, I'll So let me put you on the spot right yeah. now. The expansion of NATO, was that a mistake? I, I don't think it was a mistake. However, I think it could have been done uh, with a stronger eye to the defense, uh, the defensibility of NATO's eastern flank. Um, that is, I argue in the book that during the immediate post-Cold War period, the American strategist who made the decision to expand NATO truly did not see Russia as a great power adversary that was likely to reemerge and threaten NATO. Um, that is that this wasn't naivete, it is the fact that Russia was truly on its knees, beset by economic crisis, and seemed very unlikely to provide a geopolitical counterweight to the United States again anytime soon. 
Um, so what I think could have been done differently in the 1990s was, is, for example, to have only expanded as far as NATO's far eastern flank, meaning the Baltic states, if and when NATO members had committed to a force posture, including force posture by the Europeans themselves, that would allow the Baltics to be defensible. Um, so I think there was a strong political rationale for doing it, but simply because Russia was so inconceivably a military threat when this process started, the uh, defensibility should have been and could have been more front of mind than it ultimately was. Let's spend a little bit of time about another area of the book that you focused on, and it certainly is relevant given how President Trump has you know, really been out there advocating for countries to pay, as he would say, their share. Uh, they're getting a free ride. How does uh, our involvement in alliances, especially with NATO, uh, actually as a, is, is efficient, uh, saves us money? Absolutely. I, I'll note uh, that it's, of course, an important point in some ways that President Trump is making, but that his concerns about ally spending are not at all novel. Um, that, in fact, American presidents have worried for decades whether allies were spending enough. And in some ways, this is actually a product of the way this system was built. When the United States first extended its security guarantees in Europe and Asia in the early Cold War period, it knew these allies were not going to be able to spend as much on defense as the United States could because they had all recently been ravaged by World War II, whereas the United States economy emerged, emerged revved and prosperous. So they accepted the fact that the United States was going to spend asymmetrically. And for at least the first couple of decades, planners in Washington were perfectly fine with this. From the American perspective, there were actually some advantages to spending more than defense partners on these treaty commitments, because that would mean that the United States had more leverage over their decision making. Nevertheless, today, certainly in the 21st century, many of these allies are prosperous democracies, thriving economies, and it is perfectly reasonable to ask them to spend a bit more towards the common defense. Uh, but what I would argue is that it's deeply problematic to do so in ways that are coercive, threatening, or erode the integrity of the alliance itself. And the reason for that is that if we break our alliances, that is, if we try to punish allies or coerce them into spending more, but ultimately end up destroying the functionality of this collective defense arrangement, we will ultimately end up paying more. And the reason for that is that an American foreign policy that can rely on alliances is almost certainly than the same, almost certainly cheaper rather than the same foreign policy that cannot rely on them. Um, so we must acknowledge that the mere fact of alliances are cost sharing measures. What we're trying to do here is rebalance some of those costs precisely because the system has been so successful for 70 years that it allowed these allies to thrive and become more able to contribute. And if we shake them down at the cost of the integrity of the system itself, ultimately it will cost us politically and financially. That's strong language, shakedown. Um, do, do you feel that's what we've been doing? Is that how it's perceived? And uh, well, yep. I think in some cases, unfortunately, it is. Um, Germany? Germany and South Korea are the two that I would point to. Um, there's been a lot of news, of course, about Germany recently because the United States has made a decision to withdraw 11,000 troops from Germany. Um, it's worth noting before we you know, dive into any of these questions that when the United States deploys troops to an allied country, it's not simply doing so in service of the alliance. It's doing so because it's decided that its own national security interests mandate a forward deployed troop presence there. 
No alliance requires any specific troop deployment. It's a U.S. and ally decision to deploy troops for that. So the U.S. troop presence in Germany is there because it supports all manner of U.S. military force posture goals around the world, not simply for the defense of Germany. Um, but it seems that the president has had a bit of a standoff with Angela Merkel, both about Germany's defense spending and about her decision uh, not to attend a G7 meeting. And while uh, Chancellor Merkel, like all other NATO allies, did commit to spending 2% of GDP on, uh, on the military by 2024, she has not reached that target date yet. And nevertheless, the United States has made a decision to pull troops out of Germany. So that looks to many, including our friends uh, in Germany, like an effort to coerce Angela Merkel into changing um, her own decision making. There is a similar standoff going on in South Korea, where the current administration has asked South Korean allies to quintuple their spending on uh, the cost-sharing arrangements with the United States. Now, that is a huge ask because on an annual basis, South Korea was already spending nearly a billion dollars um, on cost-sharing arrangements with the United States. It pays for all sorts of things towards the US troop presence that don't even get counted in that amount. And it's simply not feasible for them to increase that amount by fivefold. Indeed, they probably don't need to because it's one of the cheapest places on earth already to base American troops cheaper even than basing them at home. And they're but providing they, low cost leases. Exactly. They, they subsidize leases. They subsidize military construction. Um, so there are all kinds of costs that are defrayed by our allies in South Korea. Nevertheless, these talks have been in a standoff for almost a year now, and there's also a threat to withdraw troops from South Korea, which if it happened, would be devastating to both US and South Korean national security. Of course, North Korea is more dangerous than it has ever been, continuing to produce nuclear weapons and perfecting its ability to potentially strike the US homeland using an intercontinental ballistic missile. So to my mind, the idea of holding hostage an alliance over an a set of ultimately unrealistic cost-sharing demands um, is purely counterproductive from Washington's national security perspective. Well, discuss how the fact that we have four uh, bases in, in Asia uh, give uh, Asian allies confidence that they do not need to devote their, re um, well, that's not really the way to say it, but that, that, that they're not going to, you know, have nuclear weapons or have to be quite as aggressive knowing that the United States is there. Yeah, it's a really important point. And frankly, it's one that China itself has historically recognized. Of course, um, in our current moment, we're increasingly thinking about Beijing as a great power competitor with whom the United States is likely to have fractious relations for years, if not decades to come. Um, but for a long time, and especially during the Cold War, China actually recognized the value to Beijing of American alliances in East Asia, primarily because by virtue of the US security guarantee to South Korea or to Japan, Seoul and Tokyo declined to pursue nuclear weapons because neither country felt that they needed them. Ultimately, they felt that if push came to shove and they found themselves in a horrible conflict, their security was implicitly backstopped by the US nuclear arsenal. And as a result, they could focus their attention on other capabilities that might supplement U.S. capabilities, but that they did not need to provide completely for the full suite of capabilities that would guarantee their own defense. And as a result, fewer countries on Earth have nuclear weapons. Um, that includes Germany, too, who flirted with it at the height of the Cold War for precisely the same reasons. 
So while there are concerns that the U.S. presence um, in an alliance could encourage allies to underspend on defense, we also have to acknowledge that there are some major benefits that come from other countries relying on America's highest end capabilities. The trick in the present tense, to my mind, is to figure out how among allies to get each other to spend efficiently and effectively in ways that will continue to redound to our mutual so I promised Hsu we'd get to his question, and it's a good time to do it. What about Taiwan? And we only have about thirty more, no, about twenty more minutes. But absolutely, it's an essential question, Hsu. Uh, so Taiwan um, was a U.S. treaty ally from the years 1954 until uh, the first day of 1979. Uh, Taiwan, or the Republic of China, was part of the United States' original constellation of treaty guarantees in East Asia. And those were primarily architected by John Foster Dulles, who was highly influential in both the Truman and the Eisenhower administration. And the decision to uh, extend a treaty guarantee to Taiwan came amongst increasing activity by communist China to, to shell um, Taiwan um, and you know, with, with the risk of escalation between the two. Nevertheless, um, despite a very successful run in that alliance, uh, the Nixon administration decided to make, of course, a diplomatic opening to China in the early 1970s. And that ultimately came to fruition when the United States and China formally recognized one another diplomatically in 1979. A condition of that formal recognition was that the United States end its treaty commitment to Taiwan. Because from Beijing's perspective, we could not have a treaty commitment to a country that Beijing did not recognize as a sovereign state. So the United States at that juncture committed itself to the one China principle, um, but also after ending the treaty guarantee, passed something called the Taiwan Relations Act, which is not quite the strength of a full mutual defense treaty, but is an act of Congress, which commits the United States to providing to Taiwan defense articles, that is equipment and other means of self-defense that will allow Taiwan to not be the subject of a military attack that could result in reunification by force. That is, the position, of course, from then on was that the Taiwan issue should be solved between China and Taiwan peacefully, and that the United States would take steps to ensure that Taiwan was not reabsorbed by force. So Taiwan has this odd status that no other uh, partner really has. It is protected by an act of Congress, um, for having formerly been a treaty ally, um, but occupies this very ambiguous space, which is in many ways an outgrowth of and appropriate to the idea of a one China principle in which the United States does not take a position on uh, the legitimate China. But let me ask you this, because in the last few months, there's been efforts, and I believe both of the House and the Senate have approved uh, the Taiwan Defense Act, and it's in markup right now. How would that change our obligations to Taiwan, or is it not as significant as it might be? So, so largely, these changes are coming within the same construct that I've described here. Um, that is that the United States has the Taiwan Relations Act, which commits to providing defense articles. Um, it has something called the Six Assurances, um, and it you know, periodically reaffirms its commitment to Taiwan. What we've seen over the course of the last few years and what we're seeing now in this legislation is really an effort to reshape the norms around what that commitment includes. Um, that is, the United States has generally shied away from having 
diplomatic contact with Taiwan that is too high level uh, for fear of provoking China, has shied away from doing too much by way of military exchanges or having major, major visits between flag officers for fear of rankling China that the United States was treating Taiwan as another sovereign state. But these expanded activities largely are expanding the way the United States treats its defense commitment to Taiwan without changing the letter of the Taiwan Relations Act. And it looks good politically right now. Yeah, I think it does. It does look good politically in no small part because the United States and of course this administration are really leaning into the idea of competition with China. And of course, I think it's important that the United States uh, find ways to support Taiwan. But I'll also note that our partners on Taiwan occasionally themselves get a little bit skittish when the United States tries to increase its commitments. Um, and that is because Taiwan itself is very used to having to try to navigate this ambiguous situation in which it is not fully treated as a sovereign state and yet exercises de facto independence on the global stage. And occasionally when the United States is trying to act in good faith to support Taiwan, it will inadvertently provoke Beijing in ways that result in Taiwan uh, feeling the brunt of Beijing's coercion. So because this is all- what they're trying to do is maintain the status quo. Exactly. The entire objective here is to maintain the status quo over Taiwan, which um, incidentally is in many ways the greatest achievement of U.S.-China relations of the last 40 years, however unsung it may be. Let's go back to that other continent for a minute, because uh, Vojin has a, a good point. Uh, Vojin, I'm going to try not to butcher your last name, uh, Joksinimovic. Uh, he says, only 2% Germans believe that Russia is a threat. Surely uh, the chancellor must reflect that in her decisions. So the, the role of, of public opinion. This is a great point. I haven't seen the exact survey um, that the questioner is referring to, and, and that does strike me as a very low number. Um, but there is no question that there is a huge differential um, between Western Europe and Eastern Europe when it comes to threat assessments of Russia. That is, countries that lie closer to Russian borders are much more likely to see Russia as a clear and present threat, while um, Western European countries uh, that are farther afield are likely to see it much less so. Um, my guess is that if we phrase the question differently um, and highlighted for German citizens the fact that Russia has attempted to interfere in German elections, uh, the number of Germans opposed to Russian interference would be much higher. Um, so the, the question uh, and its formulation really bear uh, a sort of delicate dance because it is one thing to say that Germans aren't worried about a Russian military threat and another thing entirely to say that they're not worried about Russian geopolitical interference. Um, but what the questioner is also implicitly getting at um, is a, a broader set of considerations when it comes to the role of public opinion. Um, U.S. public opinion is actually remarkably strong um, in favor of alliances. And while there is quite a bit of variation in our European partners inside of NATO in terms of how they see the role of NATO in their own defense and security, um, one of the things that is sort of belied by all the controversy that we have seen in the Trump administration amongst NATO allies in East Asia over the course of the last few years is that public opinion generally still tends to be highly favorable to the idea of countries pursuing their national security uh, objectives in tandem with one another. That is the pub, oh, go ahead. 
Well, I was just going to say, given the Trump administration or President Trump's views on this, are you seeing any type of variance between Republicans and Democrats? Yeah, it, it's a great question in the United States. Once upon a time, we actually would have expected or we did see public opinion that was more polarized um, on the question of alliances. And if we had looked in the late 1970s or the early to mid 1990s, we probably would have seen Democrats being less in favor of alliances than Republicans. Um, in many allied countries, Republicans were thought of as the more uh, pro-alliance group. Now in 2016 through 2019, if you look at uh, political affiliation when considering alliance support amongst the American public, there is very strong bipartisan support on both sides of the aisle amongst American citizens. The one exception to that is that folks who self-identify as being part of the president's core base of supporters tend to view alliances less favorably and tend to be less willing to come to the support of an ally if one should be the victim of attack. Now, we may want to see those numbers as reflecting partisanship. That is, folks who are most dedicated to the president don't like alliances because he clearly doesn't like them, and everybody else does because the president doesn't. Nevertheless, um, in the past, it has not been possible to see such a strong base in the American public of support that transcends political affiliation. And I would also argue that strong base of support extends to Congress as well. So one of the, your areas of expertise, of course, is China. And one, I, I, I cannot even begin to count how many times I've heard uh, scholars and some of our guests say, well, one thing about the United States is we have lots of allies, and that's a lot better than China, which just can count North Korea as its ally. And yet, it seems to me that's changing. And I'm holding this article that was in Foreign Policy just a few days ago. And the title is, Iran's Pact with China is Bad News for the West. And it talks about a recently leaked document that shows how China is creating you know, really stronger alliances, say like with Iran, what is the impact of that and how concerned should we be? It's a great question, Jim. Um, and I think the example that you hold up is really important. Um, by way of a just splash of history uh, for the sake of the audience, China has historically not had many formal alliances and the two that it did have during the Cold War didn't leave it with a particularly good taste in its mouth. Um, of course, that includes one with North Korea that you just mentioned, um, which for Beijing can often feel more like a liability uh, than a positive, particularly when it comes to managing North Korea's burgeoning nuclear arsenal. And the second, of course, was the alliance with the Soviet Union, which ended with the Sino-Soviet split in the 1960s and really turned Beijing off from the idea of alliances. Nevertheless, um, while I think it's correct that China is unlikely to form formal alliances on the order of the system that the United States has crafted, I do think that we are seeing China take an approach to international partnerships that is of its own brand and its own making. I see China as likely to continue to build out its geopolitical relationships through commercial ties first and foremost, seeking to expand them in ways that serve China's strategic interests. So when I think about the clearest analogy uh, between a, a US alliance system and what that would look like for China, I don't think of an alliance system necessarily. I think of the Belt and Road Initiative. 
where China is increasingly expanding its commercial ties um, to countries all around the globe at this point, hardly confined to Eurasia, um, where those ties include everything. Oh, great that you have a picture. Um, they include everything from major port projects to digital infrastructure projects that may have huge implications for both countries to over the course of our coronavirus crisis an increasing emphasis on global health through the Belt and Road. Um, so I see BRI not only as sort of a commercial project by China to export its own overcapacity to advantage its own companies, but to form stronger strategic relationships with countries in South, Central, um, Greater Eurasia, Africa, and even Latin America in ways that may ultimately have serious strategic ramifications. Of course, if China has strong commercial ties to a country with whom it has also built a port project, that's a place where it may have not only commercial but military access um, in a time of crisis or conflict. So I don't think we should be looking for an analogy to the U.S. alliance system. I think we should be expecting Beijing to go about this their own way. So we have about uh, eight, nine minutes left, and you're not surprised to know that there are a number of questions on the Middle East, particularly what about our relationship with Israel as um, this comes from Briarwood Crime Watch uh, here in, in my neighborhood. Um, seems like we have an unwritten alliance with Israel. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, and clearly the, the questioner has noted that I haven't been talking much about the Middle East. Um, now that's because the United States does not have mutual defense commitments that it has extended to its partners in the Middle East. Of course, um, we can think about Israel, um, with whom there is, of course, a, a very strong defensive relationship. And we could also talk about countries like Saudi Arabia um, or other Arab republics. UAE, I mean, where we've put in you know, enormous um, arms. Absolutely. Um, with whom the United States has had longstanding defensive arrangements. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in some ways, the case of Israel is different. And the probably the closest analogy is Taiwan, which we've already talked about in the sense that there is no treaty commitment, there's not even an act of Congress, yet there is such strong bipartisan support for Israel uh, and such a strong sentiment within the US government that the United States is interested in Israel's defense, that there is a almost de facto alliance that has been in place for a very long time. I would note, however, that in the early 1960s, the United States considered formalizing an alliance with Israel, and it ultimately declined to do so. And the reason that it did is quite interesting, and it actually helps to explain why America's alliance record has been so successful. Um, the United States thought about forming a formal treaty guarantee with Israel in the early 1960s during the Kennedy administration. And it did so once it got wind of the fact that Israel was probably pursuing nuclear weapons. The thinking was, if we offer Israel a security guarantee, we might be able to buy them out of the nuclear business, much the way we have with other allies, keep them in the American fold, and reduce global nuclear proliferation. But at the time, Israel had an enduring uh, standoff with Egypt, who the United States did not then count as an adversary. So to the US, the risk of entrapment in a conflict between Israel and Egypt was too high to form this formal defensive arrangement. And it preferred to keep the relationship informal, knowing that that probably meant that Israel would still go nuclear. 
that tells you something about why our alliance record has been so successful. Because occasionally, and even in places where the United States saw a strong defensive interest, it hasn't extended treaty commitments where it has felt it was at risk of an entrapment situation. So part of the reason why we're so rarely entangled in foreign conflicts is because we've actually extended treaties with an eye to making sure that we don't become so. And nevertheless, upholding the defensive relationship in a different way. So an ally is very different than forming an, an, an alliance. And we have um, a number of non-NATO allies, uh, countries ranging from uh, Taiwan, Israel, Jordan, Tunisia. Every president has uh, added to this list of non-NATO allies, including President Trump most recently with Brazil. How do they fit into this global structure? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good question. And for my money, Jim, I really wish we would sort of use the terms allies and partners more carefully. Um, when we, when policymakers talk about allies, they often conflate the two terms. But as I hope um, listeners are taking away today, I do think there is something quite sacred um, and especially distinct about a treaty commitment whereby the United States has pledged to treat a country as though it were its own when it comes to uh, the prospect of defense. Um, and I think that alliances really deserve their, their own special category in that regard. But when policymakers talk about non-NATO treaty allies or talk about non-NATO allies, they're really talking about a category that was created in the late Cold War period. That is, for um, the period that we've discussed um, in some detail, that is the height of the Cold War, this category didn't exist. Um, to the best of my recollection, it was created in 1989. And the virtue that it serves is to create um, a set of benefits um, and a set of potential access points for cooperation for American partners in whom it has defensive interests who may nonetheless not actually be treaty allies. Um, so this group of, I believe, 20 or so countries um, does not include our NATO allies. It includes several of our treaty allies in Asia, but it also includes a number of countries in North Africa and the Middle East. And the primary purpose of this category is to allow them to do things like access, access US defense articles, engage in certain types of scientific cooperation with the Department of Defense, or engage in certain types of training exercises. So we can think of this in many ways as an operational category um, that is useful because once a country is on this list, it can do more with the United States, but it is not a treaty commitment that necessarily obligates the United States to do anything in particular if that country were to become involved in conflict. Very important distinction. Let's take this question from Don Lewin. Do our agreements typically cover actions in space? I assume the older ones didn't, but how about uh, attacking a partner's power grid or communication network, especially since it's so difficult to even tell who mounted the, who mounted the attack? Thank you, Don. Terrific question. Um, and this gets to the set of policy prescriptions that I lay out in the book. Our treaty commitments do not cover activities in space, nor do they currently cover cyber attacks. Now, the United States and its allies have begun to cooperate on cyber issues in sort of a broad stroke sense, but we are a very long way from figuring out how to apply alliances to cyberspace. Now, what I ultimately argue is that not just in Europe, but also in Asia, because American rivals are increasingly moving their strategies into non-military spaces, that is disinformation campaigns, cyber attacks, 
maritime incursion, uh, political interference, that the United States and its allies must now move this treaty system into these non-military spaces. So what does that mean? That means in a few discrete cases, expanding our Article 5 guarantees to apply to exactly the types of attacks that you just mentioned. To say that a major cyber attack on critical infrastructure or on military command and control would be treated as a military attack. Or perhaps even a state-backed election interference campaign because it so subverts the political independence of the state in question would be treated as a military attack. So what I'm suggesting is that in a few cases, we might actually expand what is covered by our Article 5 commitments. But beyond that, I also think that America's alliances increasingly need to be used to coordinate for threats that we can't necessarily deter. That is to coordinate for things like developing common 5G technology that we can keep secure, or even preparing for better supply chain security ahead of the next global pandemic. So to my mind, this Cold War system still remains ultra relevant to the challenges the United States and its allies face. But if it is to be effective in this next era, it has got to move into these new military domains and do so quickly before rivals advance and the system itself increasingly looks weak and ineffective. So when you look to the future, we uh, Democratic National Committee opened up last night, Republicans are next week. Um, any difference really right now as far as the presidential campaign and, and how this is being uh, alliances are being addressed? Well, um, I would certainly say uh, that in rhetoric, there's there's a good amount of difference. Um, you know, we are we're just talking about the troop withdrawal from Germany, the uh, situation of standoff with South Korea. And I think President Trump has made no bones about the fact that he feels quite antagonistic towards America's alliances. That That's um, a, a pretty safe bet uh, to say. I would note that Vice President Biden has, of course, um, suggested that he would work with, by, and through allies. He clearly has a long uh, history on foreign policy, um, and in the speeches and foreign affairs articles that he's written, um, he's made clear that he would recommit to America's system of alliances. But as an independent scholar, I can say that going forward, uh, there's an opportunity to do a lot more than simply recommit to America's alliances. That and is what's your new book. You got a book coming out next month, right? In, indeed, I, I, I have a new book coming out next month called An Open World. Um, but what I'm arguing in the current book about alliances, as well as the next one, is that the forces of geopolitics that have brought us to this moment, that is major power shifts, the rise of China, all the stresses and strains on America's alliances that we've been talking about, won't disappear simply by virtue of a change in American leadership. And even if we do have a new president in office, simply recommitting to the same old system won't be enough to save it. Instead, if it is to be effective and efficient in helping to keep the United States safe and prosperous for decades more, we're going to have to undertake some of these renovations that we've just been talking about, bringing this successful system into the non-military domains that will present so many of our 21st century challenges. Well, Mira, I want to thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. I look forward to perhaps next month talking with you about your, your new book. Uh, but let me remind everybody, you can pick up a copy of Shields of the Republic by going to interrobangbooks.com. Take advantage of that 10% discount by putting in DFW World. And while I'm selling things, let me also sell the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I hope that you will consider typing, texting the word DFW World to 
44321. It really, as we say here, keeps the conversation going. Mira, again, thanks for being with us. I really enjoyed your book, learned a lot. Jim, thanks so much. Everybody have a great day. See you soon.